Cleveland Schmooze is sponsored by the Cleveland Jewish News. Get the latest news and information from the Cleveland Jewish News delivered right to your inbox. Choose from breaking news, daily headlines, community life cycle notices, arts, events, highlights, and more with our free e-newsletters. Sign up now at cjn.org slash e-signup. Welcome to Cleveland Schmooze, a bi-weekly podcast about the people who make up Jewish Cleveland. We're your hosts. I'm Rachel Rood. And I'm Robin Rood. This week, we're talking to Cheryl Hirsch, Assistant Director of Jewish Lifelong Learning at Case Western Reserve University. Cheryl lost her daughter to the opioid crisis and has made it her mission to educate the community by sharing her story. Cheryl has become an advocate for education and discusses opioid addiction and what is being done to help slow down the problem. Because Cheryl's story is so powerful, we have decided to share it over the next two episodes. We spoke to Cheryl Hirsch at Siegel College in Beechwood. Cheryl Hirsch, thank you so much for joining us on Cleveland Schmitz. Hi, how are you, Rachel? Good. Um, I wanted to thank you for coming on. And, uh, you know, we start every conversation by asking if you could tell us a little bit about your Jewish upbringing. My Jewish upbringing was in New York. And I... The land of the Jews. The land of the Jews. <laughs> so when you live in New York, and my family wasn't super religious in any way, we did the holidays, and that's really how I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're in New York, you feel Jewish, even if you're not Jewish, because it, you know, you know when all the holidays are, businesses close, mm-hmm. you know what's going on. So I didn't really think about being Jewish until I moved out of New York. Um, New York City? New York City. Well, we lived in Brooklyn. Yeah, I grew up in Brooklyn. And um, uh, after I got married, we lived in Queens. And so, yeah, you sort of feel like you're just Jewish without ever really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and since my family wasn't over-religious, I knew my grandmother lit Shabbos candles every Friday, but she didn't do it as a thing. So it wasn't like we all gathered around as she lit Shabbos candles if I happened to be there. She just did it. And all, and I just remember seeing them burning in the window, but I don't. And I remember the little silver tray that she mm-hmm. had. But um, other than that, there's no real memory of Shabbos. Or, and my grandfather would go to shul on a Saturday morning, and it was a very conservative shul from what other people in the family tell me that are alive now, mm-hmm. but I never went. Um, so I really had no, I was just Jewish and that was it. Did you get bat mitzvah? No. So, mm-hmm. and back then a lot of times girls didn't, mm-hmm. um, especially in New York, I feel like. So it was mostly boys. I went to a couple of bar mitzvahs of cousins but tell you the truth there weren't that many boys in our family it was almost all girls so I nobody had a bat mitzvah in my family so can you remember the first time you remembered being a more practicing so it happened when I moved out of New York so my first time moving out of New York I was married I already had one son and I we moved to Pittsburgh and 
We didn't move into the Jewish area because, of course, we had been in Queens our whole lives. And Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh area is the Jewish area. Mm -hmm. And that felt a lot like Queens. Mm -hmm. And we said, no, we want more suburban life. Mm -hmm. So we went um, South Hills, which is more Jewish, I guess, than the North Hills is in the Pittsburgh area, or at least then it was. We all of a sudden looked around us and everyone we found on our street was blonde haired and blue eyed and Mm -hmm. not Jewish. And all of a sudden I looked at my husband and said, I think we need to join a synagogue because, (laughs) you know, I need that in my life. Like all of a sudden I realized that I missed it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, so we did, we joined a reform soul and, um, and we started going regularly and we did go every, we usually went on Friday night and then I would have dinner after um, and then we would, we always kept Friday nights as family time. Mm-hmm. So TV would go off, we'd play board games, things like that. I started making Shabbos dinner, though, very early on. Um, even in New York, I did Shabbos dinner. So mm-hmm. I would rush home from work in New York and start to prepare. And we, from the time my son was a year old, basically, we, I made Shabbos dinner. So that was always a part of our lives, and it continued in Pittsburgh. Uh, And then we just became a little more active in the synagogue and, you know, went from there. I'm still basically a Reformed Jew. Mm -hmm. I'm not a conservative Jew. Mm -hmm. I never really learned Hebrew or got it down. Mm-hmm. I did finally do my bat mitzvah as an adult just a few mm-hmm. years ago. Hey, congrats. Um, Are you active in your synagogue today? And I'm not as active in my synagogue as I was once was. So uh, I started to get onto a membership committee. So I was thought that's a really great place for me. I'm pretty outgoing. I can talk to new members, mm-hmm. tell them about the temple. and What temple is it? I'm a member of t- the temple, Tefereth Israel. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, oh, that's a good place for me. Mm-hmm. And so I started a little bit on that membership committee and then lost my daughter. Yeah. And once I lost my daughter, it was hard for me to figure out how to have a conversation with somebody brand new who I'd never met mm-hmm. without them asking, oh, how are you? What's the natural conversation? Right. What do you do? How many children do you have? Right. And I didn't know how to answer that question. Right. And so I sort of stepped back and I called the person at the temple and said, you know, I think you should take me off the committee because mm-hmm. I just don't think I can make these phone calls. And have these conversations. It was just too new and too raw. Right. Um, and then, which is why we're here, and then I got into doing so much with um, the opioid. Well, at then it was just being called an epidemic. Right. Um, and started getting on committees and doing all kinds of volunteer work that I stopped volunteering at Temple. It right. was taking you know, I work full time, so the rest of it was taking every waking hour or piece of energy that I had. So I still do that, and that's what I do. I'm just right. active in the community of people that are suffering with addiction. And it's something that you've been, you know, so active in. You're on a couple different boards. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because of your personal experience with losing someone right. to opioids. Um, is it something that it's, I'm sure you've had to tell the story a million times. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something that you're, that is hard to tell that is, or has it gotten easier as time has gone by? Um, let's say it just becomes more, I cry less. I don't want to call it hard or easy because losing a child, as anyone could even think of imagining, mm-hmm. it's never going to be easy. Right. Uh, it's with me every day. Uh, I'll say most of my, even my close friends and family, it's not like they forget, but everyone else's life goes on. Right. There's a piece of my life that'll never move. Right. There's a piece of my life that stays in the day that mm-hmm. Melissa died. And that was in 2013? 2013. Which, when you think about the timeline of the opioid crisis, Correct. was pretty early on. Correct. So she passed away in 2013, and it was before we saw all the numbers and the advertising and the news clips mm-hmm. and the newspaper stuff. You didn't see it all back then. Mm-hmm. It was the numbers in 2013 that made them declare it an epidemic in 2014. Mm. And those numbers in 2013 was something like 197 people died in Cuyahoga County. Mm -hmm. And last year, there were 700 people that died in Cuyahoga County. So let's say that this, they declared it an epidemic five years ago, but it certainly has not gotten smaller this is something that has grown in leaps and bounds and i really feel that not enough people are paying attention when you subscribe to the cleveland jewish news you receive 52 issues of the award-winning cjn and 15 total magazines including j style canvas and balanced family try the cleveland jewish news for free Start your six-week free trial at cjn.org slash six free. Although I do have to say that the community talks that you coordinated in neighborhoods that nobody would have ever in the past consider this would be a problem in. Yes. You, I mean, in my opinion, you, that was all you. You raised the awareness. <laughs> no, seriously. Because I have friends, you know, I live in Jogger County. I have friends out where I live who have suffered similarly to you. But in this neighbor, in the Beechwood, you know, Jewish community neighborhood, you don't know what's going on out in my county. No. But you're the one who really brought it to the forefront. So I still find it an issue. I can tell you... um, all my rabbis, the temple is a huge congregation. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about probably 2,000 families or more. Right. And um, and yet, you know others have suffered the way I have suffered. Whether right. it's with a sibling, a spouse, or a child, you know that other people are suffering. They will not talk about it. It's the stigma. Right. Um, I have never been one to hide my head under my covers. It's just never been who I am. Mm-hmm. And I've also always been someone who wore my heart on my sleeve. Mm-hmm. So it took me a year before I thought of sharing the story. And mm-hmm. even our closest family members did not know. 
I think that there were many people that really thought that Melissa committed suicide. I dispelled those thoughts immediately because when the day that I found her, she actually was in a sitting position on her bed. Um, she was she had flopped over to the side, but she was in a sitting position with her purse on her arm. So she was ready to go for the mm. day. She was dressed, makeup was on, her purse was hanging off her arm. Um, and she had flopped over on her bed and passed out, basically. And it was due to using heroin? It was u- due to heroin use. Mm-hmm. Um, she was living home. Which you and didn't I did know not about. know. Right. right. So that was the biggest shock to me was when I found out that it was heroin. I'll say, like, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. Right. Um, I considered myself, I used to always tell my kids, you're not going to get away with anything. I'm a... Right. New York City girl. I, you know, grew up on the streets of Brooklyn and I got it and I've tried it all and done it all. And, you know, I'm going to know when you're going to want to drink and I'm going to know when you come home and if you're high. And mm-hmm. um, for the most part, that's been true. I, um, I've i had honest and upfront conversations with my kids their whole lives. I've never, ever hid anything from them about me. And I've never... I've always asked them to not hide things to me as well. Of course, all kids do at some point or another. And I can remember catching my son with a case of beer in his car. And he told me it was his friends and, you know, whatever. And, you know, and I said, well, good. I hope they're not going to miss it. And I dumped it all out. You know, so, yeah, I've caught them in things. It's not like I never caught them doing anything. They did. I never claimed to have the best children in the world. They're darling and I loved them both. But, Mm -hmm. you know, for sure, they did things like everybody else. Um, But heroin was something, of course, that you just think to yourself, who who would think that somebody was going to take a needle to their arm? Right. I did a lot in my teens. I won't deny that. But if I had to snort it or shoot it, I would never, ever even consider trying it. So the thought of my daughter, who's now living home with me, that I didn't know she was using was just something that I I couldn't believe it. Um, Later on, when I gave um, her phone to the FBI... There was a FBI task force here in Cleveland, mm-hmm. um, opioid task force. I, they're still here. And um, they came to my house and asked me for her phone so that they could track her texts and all of that. Mm-hmm. I remember the guy from the FBI coming back to me and saying, you were really on top of her. Mm-hmm. You really were asking what's wrong. Are you okay? You were in touch with her three times a day. Mm-hmm. It's not like I lost touch or didn't talk or so I I did everything you're supposed to do as a parent Um, it just shows the power it shows the the power of the addiction and how easy it becomes for an addict to lie and we should say that the addiction began through legal means she was given a prescription correct so for her and the reason I didn't know I believe is because of her migraines. So she suffered from migraines 24 mm-hmm. seven. She never went to bed or woke up without being in pain. So right off the bat, if you've ever had a headache, a bad headache, we all know what that feels like okay. and how debilitating that can be. 
In her senior year in high school, those headaches became 24 seven and they were from a level seven to 10 in pain every day of her life. Um, We went to see many neurologists in a city where there's no shortage of doctors and no one could figure out why, um, what was causing them. They tried several different types of medicines to use specifically for migraines and nothing worked. And it was probably, I'm going to say three or four years in, she was already, that was when she was 17. It was the winter of high senior year in high school. And I'll say she was probably 20 or 21 when she finally on her own went back to see this neurologist that we had seen when she was very young at the mm-hmm. beginning. And that neurologist at the very beginning said, well, I think the only thing that's going to work is Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that when she was her? 17 years old and we never took it. I was like, no, <laughs> no, we're not going to do this. We are not going on painkillers when we haven't tried anything. And I couldn't believe any neurologist would want to prescribe that to a 17 and a half year old child who mm-hmm. who just, she was just turning 18. Like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Why would you do that? So we went to a, many other neurologists in the meantime, but she found out from a friend of hers whose mother suffered from migraines that this mother was seeing this original doctor. And this, like I said, was already in her 20s. And she went back to see this doctor. And I I didn't know she was going. She didn't even tell me mm-hmm. that she was going, probably because she knew I wouldn't want her on Oxycontin. I didn't even know that much about it. I just knew that it was a painkiller and that it was addictive. And there was all kinds of very mixed reporting on it back then. Um, of course, this was long before she died. She was on Oxycontin for almost two years and she she was died she feeling just better, before her 24th birthday. So that was the killer was it really didn't make her feel better. Mm-hmm. It sort of got her through what she had to do. So if she took some oxy, she could get to class and get back. And then if she took another dose, then she could maybe get through homework um, or maybe go out for a little while with a friend. But it wasn't like it had any lasting effect. Mm -hmm. It was take it four times a day. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of pills. And she said to me, and it was hard to argue with a 20 year old to say, nothing else has worked. Her migraines are still there. And all she said to me was, Ema, I have to get through college. And if this is what I have to do to get through school, then it's what I need to do. And when I'm done with school, if I end up becoming addicted and I have to go through rehab, then that's what I'll do. But I need this so that I can continue with school. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to argue with that. Um, she was my perpetual motion child. That's number one. Um, she was nonstop. My son, I could put him in front of the TV from the time he was born. Mm-hmm. I could put him in front of a television and say, Mommy will be back in four hours. Don't move. Mm-hmm. And four hours later, I would come back and he'd still be there. Mm-hmm. Not that I ever did that, but that's exactly the kind of kid he was. Mm-hmm. He was my couch potato. He's my brainiac. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he's a computer IT geek now. Mm-hmm. Um, he does web development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it sort of stuck, although he's very active now um, because he exercises more. But he's still, no matter what he's doing, he's on a computer, mm-hmm. you know. But her, uh-uh. if I had to sit and watch TV with her, I had to sit and watch TV with a coloring book. Mm-hmm. Or I had to sit and watch TV with a little game on the side. There was no just watching TV mm-hmm. with her. So um, she really was perpetual motion. She was one of those kids that just was nonstop. So when you asked her, like, you need to stop and rest, and she was like, no, I'm 20. I shouldn't have to. No Mm -hmm. one else has to rest at 20, so why should I? Mm -hmm. So that was her thought process. You know, we'd sit down and have these discussions, and I told her that as long as she would fight, I was right back by her side to fight, too, Mm -hmm. and that I got her back. No matter what, I've got your back. Um, And so that continued for as long as it did. But then I noticed after she was on the Oxy for almost two years that she was becoming very despondent and um, just lethargic almost. She would make it to class and back, but... She just had no life whatsoever. Mm. I finally convinced her to go off of it. It was sort of a crazy story of how that happened. She was living with a boy, actually, who I wasn't crazy about. Um, And she was in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And he was living with her. He was from the Cleveland area. And he, I found out later, he was taking some of her medication. Mm. So if she was supposed to be taking four pills a day, she was actually down to only getting like one. I think that was a huge problem and a huge part of her becoming lethargic. And basically what she did was she put herself into withdrawal Mm -hmm. without even realizing it. Um, She also had anti-nausea meds. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyone who's ever had a migraine knows you can get so sick, like so nauseated. And she did get very, very nauseated. So she had anti-nausea drugs, and she took those regularly. Um, And then finally called at like 2 in the morning one night from Cincinnati. And it was in the winter. It was January. And and she said, I want to come home. I need help. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great. Thanks for listening to Cleveland Schmooze, a podcast produced by Rachel and Robin Rood. Tune in every other Friday to get the latest episode in your podcast feed. You can also find an archive of our episodes at our website, clevelandschmooze.com. And feel free to share any comments or suggestions to our email, clevelandschmooze at gmail.com. That's schmooze spelled C-A-S-C-H. <laughs> That's schmooze spelled schmooze. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs>